Let's give all of our worship to the Lord. He's worthy to receive it. Amen. Come on. Sing it out, rise my soul. Oh, rise my soul. There is glory to behold. It's the beauty of the living Lord. God be praised. God be praised. Oh, so fix your eyes on the only one who satisfies. Time has come to lift him high. God be praised. Come on, let's lift him high. Let's praise the Lord. Don't forget the Lord and all his benefits. There's no promise that he hasn't kept. God be praised. God be praised. Praise the Lord, my soul. With everything that's in me. Everything 
Jesus forgives all our sin. He crowns us with mercy in every good thing. Give a shout of praise to the Lord.
I always uh, try to think of it uh, in our worship times like this. Uh, you know, we're not promised tomorrow. We're promised this moment that we have with the Lord right now. Can't depends on the future to say, well, I want to go for it then. I want to give my all to the Lord uh, in the future, maybe on a worship night or maybe in my prayer closet. You know, we don't have those times guaranteed to us, but we do know that we have the here and now as a church together right now, as a congregation to say, Lord, we lift you up. Would you just wake our souls up? We want to give our all to you. full passion, our full zeal, just completely devoted to you. So if you would, I want to invite you to make this moment special. Build an altar today in this moment and say, God, I choose now to give you my all. I choose now to give you my worship. It's not just another Sunday. It's not going through the motions. It's not another song that we're singing, but it's an opportunity to give our hearts to the Lord, the one who deserves it all. So Let's just sing this chorus a couple more times and let's just honestly pray, God, wake up our souls. Would you stir us just another inch closer to you, Lord? I don't care if you've been a Christian your entire life or if it's your first Sunday and you don't know the Lord, I want you to just pray in faith, God, bring me closer to you, shake me up. Shake us up today, Lord. Above them all, in the 
Yeah. 
say these words, Jesus, I love you. We say your, your word is a lamp unto my feet. We know that in scripture and that's just a posture of obedience. When we're ascribing glory to the Lord, we're saying, God, I follow you. I love you. That's what we mean by that. And um, I want to invite Kristen Massey to join me on stage. Would you guys welcome Kristen Massey? And when I think about obedience, here, let me give you this microphone right here. When I think about obedience and living a life that follows God's call, I think of Kristen Massey. She serves as a missionary in Kenya. And uh, if the Massey family, you, you, man, you, you brought your crew. Massey family, we're so glad to have you with us at New Life East. And um, Kristen's life is one of, of being poured out for the Lord. And I, we, if you've known Kristen, you know that about her. And I, I've invited her on stage just to tell a little bit about her ministry in Kenya. She's been here on a pretty short furlough. That's what you'd call it, right? Furlough. And she, this is her last Sunday with us before returning to Kenya, where she lives, where she serves. And um, I want you to hear a little bit about what she's doing, Kenya. Can you share, Kristen? Thanks. 
Um, it's a privilege to share with you this morning, and I'm just so grateful for my New Life East family. Um, thank you for standing with me, your partnership, your support. Um, really just so grateful. Um, yeah, so I serve on the Swahili coast of East Africa, and my team and I serve in a predominantly Muslim community, and our heart is to be a presence of blessing and to share the love and hope of Jesus in the context of relationship. Um, and one of the friends that I talk about often is uh, a dear friend that my team and I have walked alongside for the last two and a half years. And we've had the privilege of holding space for her story, entering into her vulnerability and trauma, um, participating with her in milestones of great challenge and great joy, and opening the scriptures with her and her husband as they're willing to look at who is Jesus according to the Bible. Um, and we were celebrating her baby shower and afterward we were texting and she shared like, I, I'm sorry, I just didn't really know how to react. I'm not used to being loved like this. Um, and I was just so grateful, humbled and honored to be able to tell her like, our heart is that that's the love of God expressed to you through us. Um, and that really is what, how he loves you. And we want you to know that. And um, there, or she and her husband are counting the cost of following Jesus, and um, it's, it's our desire as a team to live that incarnational ministry that Jesus does. And in this season, the humanity of Jesus has meant uh, particularly <laughs> more to me, um, just his willingness to enter into our story, to enter into our struggle, to show up with compassion, full of grace and truth. And I'm grateful that you are, are of that expression as well. You've been that to me. Um, and so just thank you for the opportunity to share. If you guys know Kristen, you know that that is how she lives. You can see, you can see the Lord and how you live your life. Um, how can people find out more about your ministry? How can they partner with you? All of those things. Thanks, yes. Uh, yeah, so I'll be around after the service. If you'd like to connect, I can share a ministry card with you. Um, I send out periodic updates. And also, my mom is hosting a gathering tomorrow evening. So if you're available, I'd love to have you join us, and I can give you that address. Awesome. Kristen, um, we want to, as you're sending church, we want to gather around you in prayer and support. If you'd like to join me on stage, Barack is going to come and pray over Kristen. Um, Rory, if you want to jump up here, and yes, your, your family, your crew, get them up here. We're going to pray prayers of blessing over Kristen. Hallelujah. Christian, we want to thank God for you. The Lord sent you here to Kenya. The Lord sent me to America, and the Lord is sending you to Kenya. Yes. So we are changing countries. Yes. I knew you. I knew your father. He loved me, and I loved him. And thank you for taking time to be with my people. Let's bless the Lord for you. Father, in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I thank you for Christian, Lord, my God. Thank you for the heart you've given her. And thank you, Lord, my God, for setting up herself and allowing herself to be used of you. Yes. And that, Lord, when she gets to Kenya among the Muslims community, the place that people fear going, that, Lord, my God, you've allowed her to go right in there. Today, my father, as a church, we send her over to Kenya. Lord, my God, as a church, we surround her with your blessing. And, Lord, my father, we know The demons may say, Peter and John, I know who are you. And Lord, my father, here she is. Oh God, we are sending us a servant of God from here. 
we are releasing her, oh Lord, my Father, that every time she goes to Kenya and every place she's going to be, let your anointing be upon her, dear Lord. Let the glory of God surround her, dear Father. Every word of her mouth, Almighty God, let it bring forth life to this Muslim community. Lord, I pray for safety over her. I pray for an anointing over her. Lord, anoint her words. That every word she speaks shall come to pass. Lord, my God, the sick, oh God, shall be healed. The dead shall be raised. Nothing, almighty God, shall stop, almighty God, over her. I pray that no sickness will stand before her. No demon will stand before her. We command them to be broken by your power. Even as she speaks your word. Even as she ministers your word, your power and put your anointing shall flow over her. Oh God of glory, make a blessing to everybody she's going to meet. Meet her needs, almighty God, and preserve her from sickness and disease. Lord, my God, we bless as a church and we release her. Go in the name of the Lord. I mean, the Lord God almighty be with you. Prosper you as you bring people to his kingdom in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. Barack, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, celebrate with God. Would you celebrate Kristen's obedience? We really do. Oh, my name is Colin. If we've not had a chance to meet in one of the pastors here at, at New Life East, this is my son named Banner. And when he sleeps, man, you let him sleep. So I knew you guys would, wouldn't have any problem seeing him taking his little nap up here. Uh, but your first time with us, stop by Connect Central. We'd love a to give you a gift and say thank you for stopping by. And uh, we hope that you would continue, uh, continue and consider being a part of our community. Uh, a couple things for you to be aware of moving forward on your seat. There's a drop card for the men's conference that's coming up, the men's retreat. Check that out for more information. Also, New Life Church is hosting a worship night. First Wednesday is what we call it for an album release party on um the first Wednesday in October. What date is that? The 6th or whatever. Yeah, the so 4th. Thank you, Brooke. The 4th. Come and be a part of that. A new life north. Not here. Oh, I think that's all I have, right? Uh, would you turn to one another, say good morning before we open the word together? Good morning, New Life East. I'm so glad that you found some people that you like to talk to for a couple of seconds. 
say good morning to. If you're saying good morning to your spouse, it's a couple hours too late. Grab a seat. If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name is Rory. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, so glad that you have joined us today, especially if you're a guest in the house. We'd love to meet you after service. Say hi. Say thank you for being a part of a weekend here at New Life East. Um, one bit of business to get out of the way. Um, today is Colin Stoddard's birthday, guys. And we already sang for him at 9 o'clock service, so I'm not going to sing again or do you guys want to sing again? <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> Happy birthday. Guys, yep, he is turning 50. 45? 38. He is an adult officially, guys. Um, let him know that you love him. Give him a hug. Give him a gift. Whatever. Um, actually, don't give him a gift. Don't give him a gift. He doesn't like gifts. Um, 1 Kings chapter 11. We have been in a series. I'm sorry. They sh Andrew should not leave you and I in charge alone anymore. It just everything goes off the rails. First Kings chapter 11. We have been walking through the book of First Kings and where we find ourselves now is not at the end of the book, but we are certainly at like um, the story is changing. The narrative is shifting. The first 11 chapters or so of this story have been all about Solomon, Solomon's leadership, Solomon's reign over Israel. And what we are now about to enter into is a time where Solomon is sort of moving out of the picture. But in order to understand why that is and what happens, we've got to read 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to start right in verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can turn there with me or it'll be up on the screen. The writer of 1 Kings, he says this, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women, yikes, besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Now this is a reflection on an old commandment that had been given to God's people, not to intermarry with the tribes as they went into new lands, new and foreign places. One of the like easy things God sort of lines out is just like, don't intermarry with them because they're, they they're worshiping something else. They're not worshiping Yahweh. This is going to create some problems for you. Let me just save you a bunch of headaches. Just don't intermarry with them. Nonetheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth whew, and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Now, 
these uh, 700, we often say that Solomon had like a thousand wives and that's not really the whole picture. Solomon had 700 wives. What we probably can understand about these 700 wives is that most of them he accumulated through like political bargaining and deals, right? So back in the ancient Middle East, if you were trying to like get in good graces with another king, you wanna like, hey, we've got some stuff over here we'd love to trade with you. We'd love to get some of the stuff that you have. What would often happen is a king would go, well, I've got this daughter of mine who just is never satisfied with any of the men that I present to her. Would you please marry her? And then we can have this deal. So Solomon evidently had done something like this close to 700 times. My goodness, those poor women. And then these 300 concubines that's listed, what we can probably estimate based on what we can tell about the Middle East at that time, is that Solomon has accumulated 300 slaves, sex slaves of sort, that are now his to do with whatever he wants at any moment. So 700 wives, all through political dealings, 300 wives, 300 sex slaves for him to do with what he wants. It says that he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, an important fact about Molech is he is the God of child sacrifices in the Old Testament. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Keep that in the back of your mind. He had not followed him as his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the detestable God of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable God of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their God. So recognize Solomon is known as the guy who builds the temple. He's known as the guy who builds a palace. He's also should be known as the guy who builds close to 700 high places for sacrifices to these foreign gods to take place. And as you can guesstimate, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord God of Israel who had appeared to him how many times? Twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, I love that. I say that to my kids quite frequently. Since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I have commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. We're going to talk about that more in a couple of weeks. Yet, I will not tear the whole kingdom from him. I'll give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Let's pray. God, one of the great gifts of how you work is that you give us the scriptures, you give us this, you give us this broad spanning story to help us understand who you are and to also understand who we are. So God, we pray that this morning this, this text would serve as a mirror of sorts for our own lives, that we would be able to hold it up to ourselves, to examine our own lives, to examine, to examine how we have moved and lived and found our being in the world that we live in. Would you help us to see ourselves in this text? And as we see ourselves, would we also encounter you, a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness? Would you help us see you today? Holy Spirit, would you rest on us 
calling us sons and daughters of God. We pray that you'd be with us. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Let me ask you this morning, church, can you remember the experience of reading or hearing or watching a story, not the first time, but the second time? You know that moment when you read a story or watch it or experience it the first time, you're sort of doing it very innocently. You're just sort of being thrust into the narrative. Characters are coming out of nowhere. You're seeing things unfold in real time. You're not asking a ton of questions. You're just sort of allowing the movie, the story, the writing to just live with you. And you're just going where it takes you. Some of you can remember the first time that you saw The Sixth Sense and you just felt bad for the guy because he seemed so lost. Some of you, you've read the book where the crawdads sing. And for you, it was just a coming of age story of this young girl in the bayou. Or the first time you read or watched Fight Club and you thought, this guy just really needs to sleep. He's just, he's just, he's toasty, man. He just needs to take a nap. And there's something really like pure about when you experience a story for the first time. But then you get to the end of those stories and you realize there's like something way bigger going on. You get to the end of them and you realize like the guy was dead this whole time. You get to the end of the book and you realize that, like the, that she, in fact, did do it. Or you get to the end of it and you realize that this guy doesn't need a nap. He needs like a team of psychotherapists around him to help him like deal with his stuff. And then, if you're a crazy person, you go, I want to experience that again. So you start the book over. Or a couple of days later, you watch the movie back. Or if you're nuts like me, you go to the theater two, three times just to see the story unfold again. And as you watch it for a second time, you realize there were all of these hints along the way that the storyteller put in the plot that at the time you just thought were innocent details, just random hints of information. And then you see it a second time and you go, oh, you've been telling us the whole time. Like you have been letting us in on the story this whole time. Let me retrace Solomon's story for you if I can. Solomon's story, his dad is a man named David, who we know in the scriptures as a man after God's own heart. Yeah, not perfect, but every time he messed up, he sort of brought it to God and was like, God, can we fix it? David is dying and Solomon gets made king. Oh man, keep it, in, keep it all in the family. Solomon gets made king. And Solomon goes to worship, and as he's in worship, Yahweh, the God of Israel, shows up to him and says, Solomon, ask for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. And the legend of Solomon is that he doesn't ask for wealth, he doesn't ask for power, he doesn't ask for authority. What does he ask for? Discernment, wisdom. He asks to understand what to do. He says, God, I'm a little kid, I don't even know how to lead all of these people that you have, would you help me? And God says, because you have asked for such a noble thing, guess what, Solomon? I'm going to give you wisdom, discernment, and I'm going to give you power, wealth, and prestige. You get all of it. And Solomon's career goes by, and the language that's used in the story is that there's peace throughout the land. Things seem to be going pretty well. Solomon builds the temple, and it's beautiful, and it's ornate. Solomon built his palace, and it's beautiful, and it's ornate. Solomon installs governors over parts of the land to help him lead. He's, he's like figuring stuff out. He's like cracking the code on how to lead all of God's people. And then God comes to him in a dream again. 
And this dream is not so much an offering of a blessing, it's more of a warning. Hey Solomon, I, I see what's going on here, You're, things are going well, but I just wanna remind you, you gotta stick with me on this. You gotta worship me, you gotta stay with me. And it's not because God is like lonely and bored and wants to control humanity. He's like, hey, you're better off if you stick with me on this. And if you don't, all those blessings, all of that goodness is gonna be ripped away, not from you, it's gonna be ripped away from generations that follow. And then we arrive at this moment where Solomon has 700 wives, 300 concubines, and he is building altars to other gods. Solomon, who starts so well, finishes so poorly, until you read the story a second time, and you recognize a couple things unfold in the life of Solomon. One of them, in 1 Kings chapter 6, towards the end of it, it says the foundation of the temple, these aren't going to be on the screen, you just hold these in your head. The foundation of the temple was laid in the fourth year in the month of Ziv. He had spent seven years building it. Seven in, in the Hebrew world. Number of wholeness, number of goodness, number of completeness. Very next line in the very next chapter. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. Now as a reader, you're supposed to catch that. It took him seven years to build the temple. Completeness, wholeness, goodness. And it takes him 13 years to build his. One, he took nearly twice as long to build his own house as he did God's house. But second, in the Hebrew world, the number 13, much like for us, is a bit of an odd number. Not literally, but it's like a weird number. We think of 13 as like a, it's, it's like a bad luck number. It's not a good thing. The writer's trying to get you to catch a hint of something. Or you go on just a couple of chapters later in chapter 9. Solomon, he's like established his kingdom. He's doing all sorts of things. And then the writer just sort of slips this in. Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem. Solomon has not just built the temples, not just built the palaces. He's used whom to build it? Slaves. Can I ask you guys a question? Because you guys are smart people. What do we know about the Jewish people? Where did they, where's their story sort of originate in? <laughs> Slavery, Egypt. There's this whole sort of like looming thing over God's people of like, we don't want to do that again. And Solomon's like, you know what? I'm going to get slaves. Not just to build his palace. What does he build with slaves? The temple. He builds a church on the back of slave labor. Now, I'm not trying to rail on Solomon here, but this doesn't look great. The writer wants you to catch another hint. Something is off with this. Or, my favorite, chapter 10, they're described, the writer is describing the wealth that Solomon is accumulating. He writes this. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings. So in other words, it's much more than 666 talents. He's accumulated much more than that. Why in the world would the writer want to toss that number in there? Solomon's wealth at this point is not just an outcome of the blessing that God is giving him. There's something a little bit malignant going on underneath it. And what we find out just a couple verses later 
is that Solomon has now become the guy in the Middle East who is dealing horses and chariots and all sorts of military might to whatever country is asking for it. I'm going to put this in really plain terms. Solomon has become an arms dealer. Now, we read Solomon's story, and I think we often read it and go, well, you know, it was around the 699th wife that God really got upset. It was around the 299th concubine that God was like, this is enough. But that's not it. I would propose when you look at Solomon's story for the second time, the way you discover is that the writer is trying to get you to catch that Solomon started really well and was on a slippery slope to finishing poorly. I don't know how often you contemplate how you're going to finish life. And I don't mean how you're going to die. I mean, who will you be at the end of your life? Who will you be at the back half of your life here on earth? I don't know if you contemplate that frequently, how you, how, what your legacy will be, what you will be remembered for. Solomon starts really well and finishes really poorly, and I want to propose to you that the reason for that is that Solomon's downfall was not the byproduct of one significant foolish decision. We can throw this up on the screens here. But it was a series of small foolish decisions over the course of a lifetime that caused him to not finish well. I think we often think if our life goes off the rails, it's going to be because there's one big moment. And Solomon gives us a picture of what happens when a bunch of small decisions add up over the course of our life. A couple of the ways that we see this unfold for Solomon, the first thing that I recognize about what his life turns into is that Solomon begins to compromise on the clearest commandments. One of the things I love about the Christian faith and the world in which the church has established itself, is that nothing is above having a conversation. We read the scriptures. What we should be doing when we read the scriptures is reading them, opening, interrogating them, going, how does this work for me? How is this supposed to unfold in my life? I love that the scriptures give us a space to do that. What I also love about the scriptures is that there are plenty of moments where it is just straightforward and clear. What we don't see Solomon wrestling with is the question of like, well, to what degree should I sell military weapons? We don't see that from Solomon. We see Solomon wrestling with like the backbone of his tradition. For the, for the Jewish people, the Mosaic law is like the thing holding their morality together. And within that is what we know is the Ten Commandments. It's like, the, it's just very, it's like the first 10 things. Can we get these things right? And Solomon throughout his story, is constantly missing them. Hey, Solomon, um, what we're not going to do is we're not going to build anything to represent God to the people. We're not going to like construct altars and high places. We're just not going to do that. No graven image. We're not going to do that. Oops. Hey, Solomon, you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to murder people. Just a real baseline thing. We're just not going to kill people. If they make us mad, we're going to walk away and take a breather. And Solomon is like, but what if, I, what if God, I'm going to raise you one, what if I start my reign by killing all of my enemies? Oops. Hey, Solomon, uh, we're not going to commit adultery. And Solomon's like, is it adultery if I don't know who I'm committing adultery against? Because there's 700 wives. Hey, Solomon, what we're not going to do is worship any other gods but Yahweh. And he's like, but what if I worship everyone that my wife is worshiping? 
Solomon isn't wrestling with the complex issues of his day. He's just failing to carry out the clearest commandments. My question for us is how often do we sit around, have conversations, even internal wrestlings about the greatest challenges of our day, but what we are doing is flat out ignoring and rejecting the clearest commandments that God has placed before us. We can sit around all day and ask the question of like, should we use weapons of mass destruction in military battle? How many of you have taken a Sabbath anytime recently? Because it's a command. Like not a nice suggestion, a command. Most people I talk to say, I'm too busy to rest. God would actually look at you and say, you're actually too busy not to rest. That's why it's a commandment. Or I think about God going, hey, let's not covet our neighbor's stuff. Let's not be jealous. And you know what most of us do? We go, well, we're not gonna go like steal it from our neighbors. I'm gonna get on Amazon and swipe my credit card though until I feel good about it. They got some new stuff, let me get it. Or, I'm just gonna lob this in the air here for a second. Jesus, son of God, risen king, that whole thing. He says, hey, two things for you I'd like you to consider that are really important. Love God, good job. And love, ooh. But can't I love God and my money? And God's like, no, just one, just God. But what if I wanna love God and something else? And Jesus is like, no, just, just get the, fir- just the first part. We just need to get the first part right. Jesus goes, hey, love your neighbor. And you know what most of us do? We do exactly the thing that made Jesus answer the question, which was we go, well, but who is my neighbor really? Are they the, pe-? certainly my neighbor is not the person who votes differently than me. That couldn't be my neighbor. Certainly it's not the person who sits in the cubicle next to me that eats awful smelling food at lunch. Certainly it's not the actual neighbor I have whose yard is such a mess that I just pray for them to move every day. Certainly it's not my neighbor whose skin is a different color than mine. Jesus, come on, it can't be the people who live in different countries who find their way here in America. Those can't be my neighbors. How often do we sit around and argue about the most complex pieces of our lives, but we don't submit to the clearest commandments? This is one of the reasons that Solomon's life begins to have a downward trajectory. Hey, Solomon, let's just get the simple things right here. Let's not murder people. Let's not worship other gods. But here's the truth about Solomon. It's not just that his, like, his morality gets out of whack. The truth is, is that his morality gets out of whack mostly because from what we can tell from the writing, his relationship with God gets quite out of whack. I would say it this way, what we recognize in Solomon, I hope you're ready for this, is that there is a temptation for us to build our lives around the gifts of God, but not around the gift of God's presence. I told that to Colin this morning and he just went, ouch. Think about Solomon. All throughout the scriptures, 
He's known as the guy who is so wise and so smart. When other queens and kings come to visit him within his life, you know what they say to him? We see how wealthy and powerful and smart you are. Now, sometimes you can preach from the silence of a text, and I'm gonna do that here for a second. No one ever approaches Solomon and says, we see what rich and robust and deep relationship with Yahweh you have. They almost always look at him and they see the gifts, but they miss the giver. In Solomon, man, those palaces, they're lined with gold. That temple, it is built with the finest wood that you can find. But your relationship, your intimacy with God has gone flat. I, I thought about this in first service. There's, we as parents, if we're good parents in the room, which if you don't do this, it's not me saying you're a bad parent, just like contemplate it. Um, I remember as a kid growing up, one of the things my mom would do anytime like we had a birthday or Christmas and people gave me gifts is my mom would sit me down and be like, you need to write a thank you card to these people. Now, why was she doing that other than she wanted to control my life as an 11 year old? What she's trying to impress on my mind is that the gift is not the thing. The giver is the thing. The gift is great. Play with it, celebrate it, break it, whatever. The gift is great. What she's trying to embed in my brain is that the most important part of this is that there was someone who loved you enough, who cared about your well-being enough, who was interested in your life enough to go out, spend their money, and give you something. And Solomon gets this backwards. Solomon ends up being so fixated on the gifts that he has been given by God that I would propose to you he ultimately forgets about God's presence in his life completely. Do you know how we know this? Look at what, when God lobs his last accusation at Solomon, which is written very much like they would have written a court case, like a judicial hearing, this is what God this is what the writer of 1 Kings says about God. He says, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. God showed up in Solomon's life twice in clear and evident ways. And Solomon is still like, yeah, but the gold. Yeah, but the wood. Yeah, but the power. Yeah, but the prestige. God showed up to him twice. How many of you have found yourself like pressed against the wall and you've cried out to God, God, if you would just show up to me one time, if you would just show up to me one time, I would like, I would know exactly what to do. I'd shift my whole, I'd do whatever you want. God, I would be a missionary if you just showed up to me one time. The writer, <laughs> Kristen's like, I did that once. The writer of 1 Kings is trying to get us to recognize that God didn't just show up to Solomon once. It wasn't like a random turn of events. Solomon had access to the living God. He showed up to him twice. I've, Solomon, I've shown up to you more than most people in their life will hear my voice audibly. And I've shown up to you. I've given you visions. I've helped you see it. Why, Solomon, have you walked away? It is a fascinating thing. Because I know people, countless people, who will say to me in one breath, man, God spoke to me so clearly, I know I'm supposed to do this. And then things don't go exactly as they plan and all of a sudden they find themselves going, I don't even know if God is real anymore. I think about when I was 19, I was interning at a church and uh, there was this couple that was really close with some of our leadership team. And 
And some of you, this story will feel familiar to you because it's personally affected you. They had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. Fertility issues left and right. And they came into the church one day and they said, guys, would you be willing to pray over our family, praying, asking that God would bring new life in this space. They were beaten down, they were exhausted, but they so badly wanted a family together. And of course, as any good church would, they said, absolutely, we'll pray over you guys, we'll lay hands on you guys, we'll pray for you, we'll pray with you as long as you are on this journey of praying. So months go by, we keep praying, people keep praying, and all of a sudden one day we get this report that she's pregnant. What joy. I remember one of the things that this woman said as she was praying, she said, God, if you would give us this baby, we will always treat it as your gift to us. Mm. She gets pregnant. She ends up having the baby. They have this sweet little girl. And all of a sudden, we start to notice that they're like not at church anymore. A couple months go by, they're just not around at all. And I remember one day, I, sh- I show up to their house because I was close with them and we're just sitting there talking and I was like, hey, what's, what's going on with you guys? We haven't seen you guys in a while. Your baby, six months now, rolling around, doing all sorts of fun stuff. Where have you guys been? And they go, man, it's just, uh, life has been just really hard. We're, it eventually turns into this conversation where they're like, we're not even sure that we like believe in God anymore. And those of you that know me know my facial expressions tell no lies. I fought so hard to not move a facial muscle at all because the only thought that kept going through my head was, but God, did God not, is this not the byproduct of you believing and trusting and praying in faith that God would, is this not God showing up to you twice being like, I'm here, I'm, I'm with you, I'm in this with you. I had a friend a couple months later after that happened, I was telling him the story and I remember he looked at me and he just went, man, Sometimes humans, we fall so in love with a gift that we forget who the giver is. That's the great temptation of pastors, leaders, worship people all over the world. We would discover that we have a platform, we have a musical ability, we have a voice we can sing with, we have power over people's lives, and we forget that those things have all been given to us as gifts to steward and to hold with preciousness. We cannot forget the giver. We cannot forget the giver. So Solomon's life doesn't just go sideways because he's, he's like stopped following the clearest commandments or because he's like gotten this relationship with gift and giver out of whack. But the truth is, is that when we find ourselves worshiping the gift more than we worship God, we will inevitably worship everything but God. When we care more about the gifts of God than the gift of God's presence, we will end up worshiping everything but God because we will get the gift in the wrong place. And you know what happens when something tangible gets put on an altar? It becomes an idol. It's just what happens. And Solomon has everything he could ever ask for in the world. And all of a sudden, He's making decision after decision after decision that is slowly decaying, not just his leadership, not just his like kingship, it's decaying his whole life. And if you catch it, who ultimately will suffer for this? Not him, his kids. Which is a question that I think many of us should wrestle with because many of us are making choices 
that they may not have immediate impact on us, but your kids are one day, one day going to deal with it. Your grandkids are one day going to deal with it. I'm not talking about generational sin. I'm just talking about generational dysfunction that flows down. Solomon's whole life has decayed. And we come to this, at the end of this moment where God says, I'm not going to tear it away from you. I'm going to tear it away from the generations after. And I'm going to leave a remnant. And you can read the rest of 1 Kings right now. I could give you 20 minutes to do it. You know who completely disappears from this story? Solomon. He doesn't, he doesn't die at the end of God talking, but he might as well have. He doesn't show up again except for these two little sentences that says, as far as the rest of things that Solomon did, are they not outlined in these other places? You can go read about them. Solomon's alive for the remainder of this story, at least a chunk of it. And he's never mentioned again, and he doesn't speak again as far as the writer is concerned. You know why? Because when our lives start heading on a downward trajectory, if we have any recognition of it at all, we get embarrassed, we get ashamed, we run and we hide. And Solomon literally disappears from the story. I think one of the great temptations that Solomon succumbs to, but it's also the temptation for us, is that when we realize that we have made a bunch of small compromises or our life has got out of order with God, is that what we tend to do is we tend to hide from our own lives. We have that feeling that comes over us that says, I, don't, I can't fix this, I've messed up so bad, I've done something so unchangeable, I just wanna run away. Solomon literally disappears from the text. I wonder how many of you have made small decisions that have mounted up over time and what you wanna do is just run away from your life. You just wanna escape it. How can I get away from it? And you know what's so fascinating about Solomon? Is um, he had a very close relative who did a similar thing. It's the relative that the writer keeps bringing up. It's his dad, it's David. We know that David is a man after God's own heart, but David was not perfect. In fact, David went as far as to take a woman for himself and have her husband murdered so that he wouldn't be caught. Solomon knows what it looks like to fail like this. But you know what David does that Solomon never does? Is he tells the truth about it. David, in the midst of his failures, looks at his closest friends and says, you know what, I have sinned against heaven and earth. I have botched this as bad as I could. God, would you forgive me? He goes on to write Psalm 51 to pen out his life, to say, listen, I have messed up in so many ways. Would you just forgive me? And you know, Solomon, his greatest mistake is not that he messes up. His greatest mistake is not even that, hear this, his greatest mistake is not that he builds 700 altars to other gods. That's not his greatest misstep. His greatest misstep is he doesn't own it, tell the truth and say, God, I'm sorry. He never once repents. 
He never once says, I've messed up. And you know what's so fascinating? What do we know about God? If he would have, what kind of God would he meet? A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, compassionate, kind-hearted, a God who is working all things for the good of those who love him. That's the God he would have come face to face with, and he never does. But you know, what's interesting about Solomon is that he wrote a whole book of wisdom, and I can't help but sort of throw dirt in his face real fast to help us out. In the book of Proverbs, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds what? Church, would you stand where you are this morning? The invitation today is not complicated. It's not complex. I'm gonna tell you right now, don't overthink it. If you find yourself in a place where you have made small compromises on the things that are clear, confess and bring it out in the open. If you find yourself chasing after the gift more than the giver of the gift, renounce it, confess it, and bring it out into the open. If you find yourself wanting to run away from your own life, would you renounce it, would you confess it, and would you bring it out in the open? And the easiest way for us to do that is to do it together. So New Life East, would you join me in saying the prayer of confession this morning? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. I wanna invite our communion servers to come forward. Listen, if the kind of God that you need to come face to face with is one who is merciful and kind and compassionate and gracious, look no further than the person of Jesus. Look no further than these symbols that we use to represent who he was for us. That on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? That same night he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Pour it out for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you drink, would you do this in remembrance of me? And I wanna remind some of you this, this morning, that when you come forward to take communion, you are not participating in the act of forgiveness. That's already happened. What you are doing when you come and take, take part in the act of communion is you are reminding yourself that the forgiveness never stops. It never stops. It doesn't matter how many small failures you make, the forgiveness, never stops. We're gonna form two lines down the center aisle. Those of you on this side will come to these servers. You on this side will come to these servers. They'll hand you a piece of bread that represents Jesus's broken body. You'll take that bread, you'll then dip it in the juice which represents his shed blood for you. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for you, the people of God. Would you come forward to receive communion? Caught up in your presence I just want to sit here at your feet Caught up in 
our whole life around you. More than money, more than status, more than anything, God, we want you. Purify us, God. Praise God from Peace, would you open up your hands to receive this benediction this morning? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards you and grant you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Uh, stop by, meet, talk to Kristen on your way out. Get to know how you can help support what she has going on for the rest of you guys. We will see you next week. Have a great week.